Hi, everybody, again. <laughs> Did I say that already? <laughs> so, yes, it's true. Uh, uh, very swiftly, time goes by and uh, we come to nearly the end of the retreat. So I get to have the job of giving the last Dharma talk of the week. It's been a beautiful retreat. I'm happy I came. Uh, a whole lot has been uh, experienced and felt and spoken and heard. I think we all surprised ourselves. We've been through a lot here. More, more I think, than we had thought would happen, it seems to me. In fact, this might be the best retreat ever happened anywhere. <laughs> I mean, I can't be sure, but <laughs> I think it's entirely possible this is the best retreat ever in, in the history of Spirit Rock. And <laughs> so it's too bad that uh, it, it has to end. Although I don't know how much we, more we could stand. <laughs> and... Uh, I really have enjoyed the, the teachings a lot. And so I actually want to begin by repeating a few of the things that uh, Christiana and uh, Mary Grace said because I thought they were so uh, beautiful and so valuable and these are things that I am going to cherish uh, in the weeks and years ahead. So I wanted to, to just to underscore them, I'm just simply going to repeat more or less in my own words what I heard them say. So one terrific thing that Christiana said uh, was that we already have our own slogans, right? Wasn't that a, did you notice that when she said that? We already have our own slogans. Um, there's too much pain. You can't trust anybody. Uh, I had a bad childhood, and I'm doomed forever. I'm a broken person. We have a lot of slogans that we've been practicing for a long time. And it's so important to know that these are slogans that we've been practicing for a long time. <laughs> They're not true necessarily. They don't necessarily describe reality. They're just slogans we've been practicing for a long time. It makes a big difference, I think, to know that, right? Doesn't it? Because then you ask yourself, so how do I like these slogans? Do I want to keep going with this practice? Or would I like to try some new ones that maybe are more in line with how I'm feeling now? So that's, I thought that was really a valuable thing to think about. Because somebody might say, yeah, I like this one. I had a bad childhood and I'm doomed forever. I it's kind of like it. <laughs> <laughs> then go ahead, you know. But maybe there are others also you could practice. And then I really loved it when she said that, uh, and I think this also is so important. I mean, these are foundational things, right, for this practice. She said that uh, practicing with slogans is kind of like a different way of thinking. It's a different style of thinking. And I think she used phrases like, um, it's a dreamlike way of thinking, I think she said. Or there's space in this way of thinking. Because when you consider the way we usually think, the way it works is 
what, how does thinking go on? You know, what drives it on? What drives it on, I think, is our underlying sense of ourselves wanting to think something through or solve a problem or figure something out or, you know, follow a train of thought that somehow will lead us somewhere. That's the energy that drives thinking. And, and of course, that's practical and we do that and we, we, we have to do that and we will continue to do that as long as we're alive in the world. The trouble is we don't know there's another way to think. That's the only way we think. Now we're getting the idea that there's another way to think that is spacious and dreamlike and not necessarily driven by those kinds of goals. And it's like uh, dropping a pebble into a pond and just seeing what the ripples are. So in terms of how we've been practicing, it's you know, we come back to the breath, we just observe what's there, not trying to push it away, getting intimate with it, letting go. Or introducing the slogan, you know, rest in the openness of mind. Seeing what comes up, letting go. It's a, it's a whole different way of, of thinking and being with our thinking. In Zen they call it non-thinking. What kind of thinking is this? Non-thinking. That's what they call it. Actually, that's the technical term for it. <laughs> really. So it's, a, it's interesting and important to know that there's another way of thinking that, that, that we should be paying attention to that might help us in our living. It's actually thinking that will come from a bigger place, right? Because we're not controlling it. We're not in charge of this kind of thinking. It just arises in our hearts. So maybe sometimes it's very painful, and that's important, and sometimes it's very creative and unexpected. It's a different kind of thinking. And then, I had a visionary experience when I was listening to Mary Grace last night. I could see this endless line of women pushing out babies. <laughs> and then right, right while we were sitting here, the baby is like growing up and becoming, you know, old enough to have her baby. And another baby's coming. And in the back of them, little by little, the women are growing older and older and older and they're sort of disappearing. And the whole line is just going on and on and on. And I could just see it, you know. Could you see it? It was just so fabulous. And then she said, so who's getting awakened? Right? Here we are. We're just doing this together forever and ever and ever. And who's getting awakened? You know, we're so concerned about I'm going to get awakened or not or whatever. You know, who's getting awakened? Who are we talking about? When we're talking about ourselves, who are we actually talking about? <laughs> you know, it was just so... And the thing is that there's an, uh, an image in my mind that is, that's the uh, partner image of that image. And maybe you've seen this one. It's actually a very famous um, Zen uh, scroll uh, by Nantembo, uh, where it's like a crooked line of monks with the big hats. You ever see this picture? And it's a crooked line and they're sort of like begging, you know, so they're all in line uniform, their robes and their big hats, and they're walking off into the horizon. And I actually have a, a copy of that scroll by Nantembo that we bring it out at special ceremonies and we put it in the, in the hall. So, in my mind now, these go together. So on the one hand you have these monks going in this direction and the women and the children <laughs> pushing out in this direction and they're constantly passing each other by forever. Who, who's, who's awakening? What is awakening? Where are we going? Which direction are we going in? <laughs> so, I have this in my mind, I'll never forget. <laughs> forget that. <laughs> so, what did we learn? <laughs> 
how much progress did we make? <laughs> well, maybe we learned that uh, probably uh, our lives are not exactly what we think they are. Probably we learned that we're not exactly who we think we are. Probably we learned that the stories that we tell ourselves about this world that we're living in are, are full of holes, those stories. Uh, we probably we need those stories, all of them, to get by on. Uh, it won't work to go home and tell your spouse or your friends, I'm, I'm actually not who I look like. <laughs> I'm somebody else. <laughs> They'll think, oh boy, I'm not going to that retreat center. That's really bad. <laughs> so we need those stories. But we need to remember that they're stories and that there are many other stories. Right? Many other stories. We don't want to be hooked and caught by those stories. And I think we learned that uh, it's really, uh, not only is it okay to take really good care of ourselves, not only do we not need to feel guilty or like there's something wrong with us if we take really good care of ourselves, it's a necessity that we should really take really good care of ourselves for ourselves, but also especially for one another. So we need to take really good care of ourselves and we really need to take really good care of one another. I think we know that now. And that these things are not really different. You can't do one without the other. You can't take care of yourself without taking care of others. There's no way you can take care of yourself and ignore others because that wouldn't be taking care of yourself. And there's no way that you could take care of others without taking care of yourself. That wouldn't really be taking care of the others. This is not a choice between one or the other. It's, it's a necessity that we do this. It's the only way we're going to get through this life beautifully together. And we were... Uh, talking about the imagination. Have you noticed that this is all very much about the imagination, right? Isn't it? We're, we're practicing an imaginary practice. We're cultivating our imaginations. And uh, so I want to read you a little bit from, just a little part of an essay. It's from uh, my book, 40 Years of Essays. Uh, called Experience, Thinking, Writing, Language, and Religion. I've been, uh, I didn't really realize it, but for 40 years I've been thinking about all this and writing about it. So I want to read you a little bit, because I think it's important for what we're doing here, from this essay, Imagination. So I've been studying, you know, philosophers and thinkers in our traditions, both in the East and the West, have been thinking about what is the imagination and what importance does it have for our, for our life? I think we have reduced the imagination to a kind of like productions of Pixar. <laughs> Not that Pixar doesn't make really good movies. Probably some of you work for Pixar, I suppose. <laughs> So don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining about Pixar, but there's more to the imagination than cartoons and things like that. So uh, the high water mark, I would say, from my point of view as a poet, in thinking about the imagination in our tradition is uh, Coleridge, who famously defined imagination. And my essay on imagination begins with quoting Coleridge, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, you know, one of the romantic poets, the early... 19th century. The imagination then, and he capitalizes the word imagination, all the letters. The imagination then, I consider either as primary or secondary. The primary imagination I hold to be the living power and prime agent 
of all human perception. Surprising. And as a repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. So Coleridge was also a cleric, Church of England, he didn't really function that way, but he was trained that way. So he, he thinks that we are creating the world uh, in our, through our imagination, through the power of our imaginations, in precisely the way that God creates the world through an act of imagination. After all, we all know our Bible. Let there be light. Kaboom! <laughs> right? There's no like, let's get a machine and build some light and get the elements and put it together. It's like, let there be light. That's it. An act of the imagination. And we do that. And, and incidentally, uh, contemporary cognitive science completely corroborates this. We are literally putting the world together through an imaginative act moment by moment. And that's what Coleridge says is the imagination. The secondary imagination I consider as an echo of the former, coexisting with the conscious will, yet still as identical with the primary in its kind uh, uh, and agency, and differing only in degree and in mode of operation. It dissolves, diffuses, dissipates in order to recreate, or where this process is rendered impossible, yet still at all events it struggles to idealize and unify. It is essentially vital, even as all objects, as objects, are essentially fixed and dead. So, what he means by that is, he's talking about art and acts of the imagination that we would identify as creative acts. So he's saying that the imagination is basically us being in the world. The world coming to exist in our lives is an act of the imagination. The secondary act of the imagination is when we are creative. When we do acts of creativity. And our acts of creativity bring objects to life, which otherwise would be dead and fixed. And this is true, you know, you, you sometimes maybe somebody here has had the experience of all of a sudden everything is fixed and dead in your life. And you can't get out of bed. It's like there's no meaning. There's no point. The world is just kind of laying there on the plate, you know. <coughs> Nothing. Right? When you get really depressed, despairing, the world stops being alive for you. And you can't live in it. You can barely live in it. Because you have to be, it takes a creative, an act of creativity to continue to live in the world. And so, you know, all the arts and uh, all imaginative uh, forms, and I include in that spiritual practice. I think spiritual practice is the fundamental act of the imagination. And I think that's why we do practice. That's why every human community that ever existed anywhere on the planet Earth, from the beginnings of humanity to the present, have always had some form of spiritual endeavor, religious practice, because human beings need that to bring the world to life. That spirituality and all other creative acts. Isn't that interesting? I, thought, I think it's interesting. So then uh, the essay goes on, uh, which I'm going to skip this part because it's kind of uh, detailed, but it goes on to uh, analyze or discuss um, the Buddhist um, idealist philosophy, psychology, which uh, talks about the nature of consciousness and divides consciousness into eight different kinds of consciousness and so on and so on and so on. But I'm going to skip that part and cut to the end of the essay, which is where the point, this is the point. <laughs> so at the end of this long disquisition uh, about Buddhist idealism, it says, I am, I hope, coming around 
to the connection of all of this and the imagination. In the system, uh, I'm discussing it in terms of the Lankavatara a Buddhist Sutra, in the system of the Lankavatara Sutra, uh, the word imagination is used. Oh, by the way, I forgot to say in the beginning, Coldridge uh, distinguishes between the imagination, which I did say, you know, two kinds of imagination, and fantasy, or he calls it fancy. Fantasy, or we we would say fantasy, he says fancy, that is like wish fulfillment. That's like cute stories that distract us, as distinguished from the imagination, which brings the world to life. Right. So, in the Lanka system, the word, the word imagination is used in precisely the opposite sense that Coleridge uses it. By imagination, the Lanka means what Coleridge means when he uses the word fancy. Our confused, twisted fantasy of what the world and our lives actually are. Reality as we generally know it is a fantasy. It is unreal. The mad rush for power and purchase, the endless distraction and destruction, the wars, the sexism, racism, homophobia, fascism, unhappiness, mania for entertainment, the debased sense of personhood, the anxiety, confusion, despair, mass murder, suicide, economic dread, political madness, all a product of a fantasy that we don't know as a fantasy. And then in parenthesis, this analysis doesn't refute economic and political causes of social misery. It argues for underlying spiritual psychological causes of those causes, which must still be addressed. Then it goes on. The revolution or transformation, and the Lankavatar, this system of eight consciousness, talks about a revolution in the consciousness that turns the fantasy into true imagination. The revolution or transformation that these teachings are pointing to is exactly what Coleridge is talking about when he talks about imagination and the, and the power of poetry and art and religion to transform our lives. This is a transformation that makes us more humane and more happy. If, as I take it, the world we are living in now is a failure of the imagination, then all works of the imagination, including spiritual practice, are potentially the healing of it. And I, and I really believe that. I actually think that the world we're living in now with all of its problems is primarily, tragically, a failure of the imagination. So when we engage in, in spiritual practice and when we cultivate the imagination in all its forms, not just spiritual practice, but in all its forms, we are actually healing the underlying causes of the dis-ease of, of our world. So that's why really not only are we practicing for ourselves and for our friends and for the many other people in our lives, we, we really are practicing for the world. This is a way of turning our world around. I really believe it. It's, it's the underlying work that we all need to do collectively. So now I'm going to read you another from another book. This one is called uh, Escape This Crazy Life of Tears. And, and, it's, and it's related. I, you'll see in a moment why I want to read this for you. Um, so this is a, a book-length poem, about 120, 30 pages. And it's actually a diary poem of a pilgrimage that I, I went on in Japan with about 25 of the senior teachers and leaders of our Everyday Zen group. We went on a pilgrimage to Japan. And 
Suzuki Roshi, you know, the famous Suzuki Roshi, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, his son, who's now a man in his middle 70s, is a dear person who's the abbot of Suzuki Roshi's temple, and he's a good friend of ours. And when, he, when we were in Japan, he was an official at the big monastery. So I had been to Eiheiji, you know. I'd been to Eiheiji several times before, but when you go there, you're like, you know, it's kind of like... But when we were there this time, it was like we owned the place because <laughs> he just sort of let us go anywhere we wanted. We could go in the monks' hall, go anywhere. So one evening, uh, he, um, we sat with him and uh, he gave us a sort of a private, wonderful Dharma talk. And so, uh, in a very few words, I, rec- I uh, tell you what his Dharma talk was. And this is one of the most amazing Dharma talks I ever heard. And you'll see how it relates in a minute. We call him Hojo-san. Hojo-san means the guy who lives in the Hojo. (laughs) And the the Hojo is the abbot's room, so you call uh, abbots Hojo. Hojo Hojo-san. So, Hojo-san. You know, here's the sim talking. Hojo-san. East, west, a person of Zazen is the same. Grandmother mind, the kind heart, is imagination. Feeling for another. See them as yourself. Takes imagination. Imagination expands the heart. One day, woke, heard, sound in both ears. Sudden hearing loss. My eyes don't work right either. Age is slowly melting my body with each loss. There's gain. My ears, my eyes, more mine now than ever, before not. So when I lose my life to death, Will my life be owned by me more then than it ever was? Isn't that wonderful? So yeah, to love somebody is to see them as yourself. That's the thing about people we love, right? They are more important to us. They're more dear to us than ourselves, right? We have exchanged ourselves for that one that we love. And that's an act of the imagination. That's a supreme act of the imagination. But what does he mean when he says, like, my ears are more mine now than they were before, now that I can't hear very well? And will my body be more mine when I lose it to death than it's ever been before? does he mean by that? Isn't that amazing that he said that? And he just said that with total sincerity, you know, he just was, he was just rambling on, you know, out loud, thinking out loud with us. And I really think it's true that uh, the life we think we have, that we think is ours, It's a fantasy, you know? It's a fantasy. The more we love, the more we're willing, bit by bit, as we can, naturally in our lives, to let go of ourselves and love others, I think the more ourselves we are. I mean, it's totally paradoxical, but I think it's true. I think one feels this in actual experience. The more self-focused we are, the less we feel like we are who we are, even though we're desperately trying to shore that up. The more we let it go, the more we just feel like, yeah, that's, this is my life. This is really my life. Letting go of my life is really my life. And that's what the compassion teachings are fundamentally all about. Loving, letting go, 
gives us more than we ever could have imagined possible for a human life. So we've been uh, working with these slogans. There's lots of them. And uh, last night, Mary Grace gave us a whole bunch of them to think about. And we've talked about others as we've gone along. See everything as a dream. Uh, Rest in the openness of mind. Practice sending and receiving alternately on the breath. Begin sending and receiving practice with yourself. We've really practiced all those slogans and others. Uh, So, but now we're ready to uh, go back into uh, pretty soon, everyday life. Uh, It's going to be Mother's Day tomorrow. And uh, some of you are mothers, all of you have have had mothers. (laughs) Anybody who hasn't, leave a note for me on the board. (laughs) I want to hear from you. By the way, uh, thank you for all of your many notes, some of which have like very detailed Dharma questions, which uh, I would take pages and pages to answer. I've tried to answer a few of the ones that I thought I could answer in brief, but and I and I, with any luck at all, I'll have time at the end of this talk to. Uh, speak to a few of the questions, but anyway, I appreciate getting the notes. It's really fun. It's special. It's like Christmas. Oh, some notes. <laughs> notes. Yeah, notes from the people. Maybe wonder what they'll say, you know. So keep those notes coming. We love it. We all, we all love it. We love it. <laughs> there are no notes in Zen practice, by the way. If you go to a Zen retreat, no notes. No notes. Very strict. Really hard ass. No notes. <laughs> hard practice. No notes. Uh, yeah, so how did I get onto notes? Notes. What? Oh, yeah, it's Mother's Day. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Right, so leave me a note if you don't have a mother, and and uh, and I hope everybody is going to like uh, do something tomorrow to honor their mother. I guess if your mother is passed on, as my mother has, I can't do too much for her other than think about her. Flowers won't work. Um, but I have a wife, and I have daughters-in-law who are all mothers, so. You'll all honor your mother and receive the honors of your children. So, but, but my point is that we're going back into the world in which there are things like Mother's Day and birthdays and people to relate to and problems to solve and conflicts to have and hassles to get involved in. So I thought that I would, uh, at this point, bring up a few of the slogans that have to do with all that from the uh, chapters that have to do with uh, the discipline of relationship and living with ease in a crazy world. So I thought I'd bring up a few of those slogans and talk about them a little bit. So uh, this is uh, a slogan from, uh, I'll do a couple from uh, the discipline of relationship. Because when you think about it, I mean it's, sort of odd in a way, we're practicing compassion by sitting on our cushion all by ourselves, saying nothing to know anybody, right? <laughs> it's kind of weird. Actually, practicing compassion certainly involves other people, right? So uh, we're going to go forth and we have a chance to really, really practice compassion. We've been sort of like doing the groundwork, but now we'll get a chance to really do it. So here's some slogans uh, under that point. The first one I'll bring up is, don't be a phony. Don't be a phony. 
It is very tempting, especially after doing a week's retreat, to feel as if you are a very spiritual person <laughs> who's just done something, you know, very special and wonderful that these ordinary run-of-the-mill jerks in the world know nothing about. <laughs> so you may find yourself going home and sort of conducting yourself ex with extreme mindfulness. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the softest loving-kindness and people will look at you uh, like thinking you're weird. <laughs> so avoid that <laughs> if you can. Uh, you know, in the, in the Zen centers, I think one of the things that gives Zen a bad name is that some of the newer Zen students are very particular about all the Zen forms. You know, they practice them with like great punctiliousness and perfection, or they try. And everybody, it's a pain in the butt for everybody else. The old timers like are really sloppy and just, <laughs> just do everything in an easygoing way. So don't you be like those new time Zen students. Be like the old time Zen students and just relax. So the point of this slogan, don't be a phony, is, is this. If you have decided to revolutionize your life, please do revolutionize your life. But try not to impose a new regimen on yourself. It would be very easy to do that. To, you know, like put this, like, put yourself in a bell jar of slogans. Or like a robot, like R2-D2, you know. <laughs> so don't be a phony. Don't, don't, the thing about it is that what you come to realize is do not impose another regimen on yourself because the fact of the matter is that you have been imposing a regimen on yourself your entire life without knowing you were doing that. And the point now is you can stop imposing any regimen on yourself. These slogans are not to give you a new regimen. They're simply to undo the regimen that you're already in. To, to shatter that glass jar you've been walking around in all this time. So you practice, don't be a phony. As soon as you notice yourself doing a number on yourself, you say, whoa, you know, don't be a phony. Just be yourself. Just do what you're doing. Don't worry. Don't be a phony. Don't talk about faults. F-A-U-L-T-S. Faults. Don't talk about faults. That would be a challenge, right? Think about it. a very high percentage of our conversation has to do with other people's faults, <laughs> right? Great percentage of our thoughts have to do with the deficiencies of our dear friends and relatives. Suppose, I mean, this would be something to try, you know, for a week. Never talk about the faults of anyone. If you try to do this for a week, you'll be amazed, first of all, at how different it is and how much you do talk about other people's faults. If you were to actually do this ongoingly, you would become an unusually, unusually likable person. <laughs> you would. Other people would be drawn to you. They wouldn't know why but they would be drawn to you because it is so normal for people to speak critically all the time of everything, of one another and of everything else in the world, that somebody who didn't do that would strike people. They wouldn't even understand what, what it was about you, but they would say, there's something about that person. Well, I don't know what it is <laughs> because it's so different. We're always 
you know, when friends get together, what are they talking about? The other friends who aren't there. <laughs> and what's wrong with them? Right? So my theory is that this makes us all extremely nervous under the surface in all human exchange. Because here we are talking about her. I mean, it's all in good fun and so on and so on. You know, it's not like necessarily mean-spirited, but it is very critical. And we're doing this. And without even kind of having the thought, we all know, so what about when she's here and I'm not here? (laughs) Then what are they saying about me, right? So this makes us wary. I think, generally speaking, we are wary of one another. We're slightly paranoid of, of one another for good reason, right? If we didn't talk about faults, we would feel differently about one another. But what about the people who have tremendous faults? <laughs> you know, they really do. They're, they're really, you know, like you know, rotten people. What about those people? We're, not, we're supposed to pretend they're not rotten? Well, even a rotten person, if you speak to them or about them critically in a harsh way, even though they deserve the rebuke, it actually doesn't help them. It doesn't help to make them any better. It usually makes the situation worse. And this is so whether you snipe behind the person's back or give the person direct feedback. The traditional translation of this slogan that I've rendered as don't speak about faults actually says, don't speak about injured limbs. And the idea is that uh, when you see a person like coming down the street who has like one arm, right, and like deformed hip or something and they walk all crooked and everything, you see right away that they have problems. And you notice that. And you notice that because of those problems, they probably have physical limitations. But you would never think about like criticizing them for it. You know what I mean? Would that be ridiculous? Like, what's wrong with him? He lost an arm. What the hell's wrong with that person? You know? <laughs> right? I mean, you wouldn't do that. Even though there is, really is a missing arm and, and, it's, and it's a problem, but you wouldn't, you would, it wouldn't occur to you even to, to criticize the person. Well, it's exactly the same thing with a person who's like a terrible person. They're injured, right? It's not their fault probably. Something happened and caused them to be that way. And what's happened to them is that because they're rotten people, everybody in the world thinks they're rotten people and treats them as if they were rotten people because they are. And then what happens to them? They become convinced that they're rotten people. And they become convinced that the whole world is against them. And they become hardened in their point of view. What about when they run into somebody who treats them with kindness and respect, who sees their wound and treats them the way you treat somebody with a physical deformity, with respect and sympathy? Well, this is shocking to that person. And, I mean, I think we've heard stories of people whose lives, rotten people whose lives were turned around by one kind person. My third grade teacher, you know, treated me well. And that made all the difference or whatever it was, right? Don't speak about faults. So the idea is that practicing this slogan, you would begin to notice when you were speaking about faults, and you would be in the question that in yourself. Don't figure others out. Right? That's a good one. Don't figure others out. You know, who could ever claim to understand another person? You know, you've been sitting here long enough to know that you don't understand yourself, right? You're a mystery to yourself. 
you're so full of contradictions, you know, right? As soon as you say, I'm this way, you realize, yeah, but I'm also that way. So how could we ever dream that we have another person figured out? Uh, one of the things that I do is work in conflict resolution, and um, one of the guys that I work with in that work, Jack Himmelstein from the Center for Understanding and Conflict, has a brilliant saying. He says, um, we judge ourselves by our intentions. We judge others by the effects of their actions on us. Isn't that true? I, yes, I said that and did that, but I didn't mean anything. I, I, I didn't mean any harm. And I know that. But what you just said to me, whoa, that was terrible. You know, shame on you. Well, I don't know your intentions. I only know the effects of your actions on me. So, in other words, we don't really know other people's intentions and what's in their hearts. This is the reason why pretty much 100% of the time when we're in a conflict, we're always on the right side. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Very seldom you, you get in this heated conflict and you say to the other person, you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> you're mad at them. No, that never happens, right? <laughs> because we know our own intentions and we think we have the other person figured out and we, and we don't ever have the other person figured out. So when you find yourself getting mad at somebody because they're this way and they're that way, just remind yourself, don't figure others out. I really don't know what's going on here, what that person is feeling or thinking. I actually don't know. And if you don't know, probably makes more sense to imagine that, it, that the person is really sympathetic in some way, rather than that they're terrible. Since you don't know, you might as well assume the best. And even when people do do terrible things, well, you know, maybe that's what they have to do for a while. That happens, right? People have to act out for a while before they can change. So we, we know we don't understand one another. We give everybody the benefit of the doubt, including ourselves. Don't figure others out is a huge practice in relationship. Check yourself and you'll see that when you're upset with someone, it's because you know exactly what they're doing and why, right? <laughs> and, and you don't. So it's a good slogan, don't figure others out. So just a couple short ones and then I'll end. I, I like this one. This time, get it right. <laughs> to me it's hilarious, you know. This time, get it right. It's a joke, right? <laughs> I mean, this is the 51st slogan out of 59. So, you know, like maybe years have gone by, we practiced like 50 slogans. Okay, this time get it right. <laughs> we keep getting it wrong. The thing about these slogans is you might think they're telling you how you're supposed to be. They're not actually telling you how you're supposed to be. They're meant to simply interrupt the usual way you are. That's the point. So from the point of view of trying to be perfect and trying to do, you know, be a perfect Buddha like these slogans would seem to indicate you're supposed to be, from that standpoint, you're always getting it wrong. So this time, get it right. Yeah, I haven't been able to pay attention to my breath, but this time, I'm going to really do it. I haven't been able to remember to love other people, but right now I'm really going to do it. Maybe, you know, I never did it before, and maybe I'll never do it again, but this time I'm definitely going to do it. 
Because, of course, there is only this time, right? This time. There isn't any other time. And this time lasts our whole life. So don't worry about how well you did in the past or how you hope to do in the future. Just get it right this time. And if not, then get it right this time. <laughs> and the last uh, slogan in the text, and I'll end with this one and just have another word and we'll be done. Don't expect applause. Mary Grace gave us this one last night. I, I love this one. It's at the very end, right? The whole thing. You've spent like decades working on these slogans and now you come to the last one. Don't expect applause. Almost everything that we have ever done in our lives, from the first day of our lives, when we noticed that when we did that thing, our mom smiled at us. From that day until yesterday, <laughs> when we won the Nobel Prize in microbiology, everything, or nearly everything that we've ever done has actually been for the applause. Let's be honest. Nobody does it for the money. Really, they don't. They don't do it for the money. They don't do it for the prestige. They don't even do it for all the good they're doing in the world. They're doing it for the applause. The approval that we sought from others and that we internalized into our own sense of self, right at the basis of our own sense of self. The applause that we've been getting all our lives that has re reassured us that the dread that we felt that came from a feeling inside that ultimately our life didn't really matter. That applause reassured us that we didn't really have to worry about that dread, that it wasn't true. So that even when we commit ourselves to this practice, even after we practice all these slogans and do a whole week's retreat, we have to admit, in large measure, we're doing it for the applause. For the applause of the mommy and daddy in our hearts, who we know will really applaud us for all of this meditation work and spiritual work. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. We, we should all give and receive applause sometimes. Parents always applaud their children, or they should. And when they don't, when they have a theory that you should withhold applause, it hurts children. Praise is one of the most fundamental of all spiritual practices. Most of prayer is praise, right? Praising the Lord or the saints for their goodness. And we praise the sun and the moon for shining. So praise is good and applause is good. But when we're looking for it too much, when we're expecting it, when we're needing it to justify ourselves, that's when we're in trouble. That's when we've lost our sense of self, lost our center. So although we can enjoy the applause that probably we actually will receive when we're more compassionate, loving people, more easygoing, more relaxed, more happy people, probably we will receive applause for that. We do the practice not for the applause, but because we know it's the right thing to do. And when you really get down to it, there is no other way. Do we receive applause for breathing? Do we receive applause for standing up, sitting down, 
looking at the sky. Yes, we are applauded for all these things. And when people will applaud us for our wonderful achievements, really what they're applauding is not us and not those achievements. They're applauding life. They're applauding goodness. They're applauding their own lives. And they're applauding the human capacity to appreciate something really wonderful. So let people applaud. It's really good. And you should applaud other people. And when you applaud them, you should really be unreserved in your applause. And when they applaud you, you should graciously accept it, but know what the applause really means. Know it's not about you. And sometimes they won't applause, applaud. Sometimes they'll scorn you and yell at you and tell you you made big mistakes and you're not a good person. And as we already know, the challenge there is to accept that too and say, Oh, is that so? Okay. And turn all mishaps into the path. So don't expect applause. Don't expect scorn. Don't expect anything except the unexpected. Because that's always what happens, even when you expected it. If you look at what happens, it's never what you expected. It's always something else. You never know what's going to happen next. So I'm going to conclude. I guess I'm not getting to the stack of notes, but sorry about that. But I, this happened to be in, the, in the, my copy of Training and Compassion. And, and just it touched me, and I just want to read this for you. This is, uh, I clipped this out of the newsletter of the synagogue, Temple Beth Shalom in San Francisco, where my dear, dear friend of more than 40 years was, was the rabbi. And uh, on uh, January the 12th, 2009, he was at a retreat, something like this one. He was a meditating rabbi and one famous rabbi in the Jewish meditation movement. He was at a retreat like this and he went out for his walk, like I always do. In a retreat, I always go out in the afternoon. He went out for his walk and he never came back. He, they found him on the road, dead. It was a tremendous blow and loss. He had already retired a few years earlier from being rabbi at the synagogue. And so this is the young rabbi, Micah Hyman, who succeeded him, writing in the newsletter about his death. Just a couple paragraphs. Rabbi Alan Liu passed away Monday morning, the 16th of Tevet in the Hebrew calendar, just before this newsletter was about to go to print. We are all stunned by his death and grapple with how to make his memory a blessing. Harav Avraham Yosef ben Yeshia, which was his Hebrew name, was a lev and a leib, a titanic heart and a lion of Judah. As he said, if we are able to face our own darkness, our own impending death, we wouldn't have to be so afraid of it. We must not be afraid. It is precisely the devastation of our life which opens us up. This is when the real spiritual life begins. It's about what happens when life tears you open and you are lying there under an open sky with your heart naked and nothing between you and God. 
And that's a very chilling line because I think that's exactly how he died. He was laying there under an open sky with his heart naked. I think he had a, must have had a heart attack or stroke or something and nothing whatsoever between him and God. So then Rabbi Hyman goes on to say, he, he was like the Aleph, you know, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is an Aleph, which is a silent letter. He was like the Aleph he so often spoke about and meditated on, strong, silent, and vocal, the shape of a man pointing to both heaven and earth. And the Aleph does that. It's a letter, it's kind of like this. Pointing to both heaven and earth, the essence of a leader. The end of his life has made us aware of the enormity of his gifts and mitzvot, good deeds, which continue to ripple. This is the Aleph. It is also beginning. As he said, our bodies and souls are joined with the planet in continual rhythmic exchange, matter and energy, constantly flowing back and forth between ourselves and our environment. This is our actual experience. This is breathing. This is what our consciousness would tell us if we simply attended to the reality of life. This is our reality, Rabbi Hyman says. Let us be present in the moment and realize in action how to continue to make his memory a blessing. And ever since his passing, I've been trying to do that. I've been holding him in my heart every day and trying to keep practicing with him. We practiced side by side for many, many years. When he wrote those words, Rabbi Hyman, who had a beautiful wife named Aaron Hyman and two young children, Rabbi Hyman had no idea that when in about a year's time, uh, his wife Erin would get terrible breast cancer and also die. Young woman, young children, really terrible. That was, I mean, Alan was 65, so we lost him too soon, but okay, he had a good life, his children were grown. But Erin Hyman was in her 30s, and she was in our Jewish meditation group. We knew her well. She so much wanted to live for her children, you know. So this happens, right? It happens to all of us. It happens every day on planet Earth. There's no preventing it. We cry. Uh, we're sorry. Our hearts soften. They fall open. We can't be involved in stupid controversies anymore, right? We, we can't. We have to be serious about our lives and we have to be kind. So, what fun to practice together, right? It's been a pleasure. And now we're gonna uh, Take a breath or two and go outside and walk. I'll ring the bell when it's time to walk. And then we'll come back in for our final sit. So let's return just for a moment to the breath. <laughs> 